Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In times of spiritual and moral chaos, it can be hard to discern truth from error and to apply it to all of life. God's word is not silent, and we don't have to be either. This is Once for All Delivered with Caleb Castro and Andrew Smith. Hi there, OFAD lads and lasses, lasses and lads. Uh, Welcome back to another rip-roaring, exciting episode of Once for All Delivered. I am your co-host, Caleb Castro. And I am your rip-roaring co-host, Andrew Smith. I don't know what rip-roaring means, but whatever it is, uh, that's what this is, and I hope it excites you. As we continue here in our uh, conversations on the doctrine of God from the Apostles' Creed, of God the Father Almighty, and what it is to confess Him as such and as Creator of heaven and earth. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. I think that that's a good segue for he not only has the uh, creation planned out from beginning to end and everything that goes along, but he is actively involved and he's governing everything that's involved in it. So that, that's what takes us to then this connection between creation and providence. So that takes us to question 18 of the larger catechism. Uh, what are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. So it is not merely that God created the world in this way, created it good, created it suitable for human life and habitation. But he continues to uphold and govern the world. So this would be, for instance, a refutation of of any kind of deism that the view that basically God wound up the world like a clock, made it and then basically has now left it to its own. No, God remains active and involved in the governance of the world, comprehensively governing the world. And then, as we saw before, too, this has specific implications Uh, for angels and for men in questions 19 and 20. So question 19, what is God's providence toward the angels? God, by his providence, permitted some of the angels willfully and irrecoverably to fall into sin and damnation, limiting and ordering that and all their sins to his own glory and establish the rest in holiness and happiness, employing them all at his pleasure in the administrations of his power, mercy and justice. So here the catechism says that some of the angels did fall, but even this is to his own glory, um, was within his will, uh, was within his control. And then question 20, what was the providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created? The providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created was the placing him in paradise, so the garden, appointing him to dress it, giving him liberty to eat of the fruit of the earth, putting the creatures under his dominion, and ordaining marriage for his help, affording him communion with himself, instituting the Sabbath, entering into a covenant of life with him upon condition of personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience, of which the tree of life was a pledge, and forbidding to eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. So all of these things, these conditions under which man was created, the way he was made, the way he was placed in the earth, and all these things that were set up and ordained for him, that is all part of God's hand of providence for man and as his continuing rule and governance of the world as a part of 
uh, ultimately this plan of redemption. Here we have man in his state of innocence, not yet fallen. That's actually where the catechism goes next, and we're not going there today. Um, but this is basically the scene being set for that, but by God's creation and by his hand of providence towards man. Yeah, so when we go to providence, then we're importing the various attributes um, in their action and at their work in the sustaining of these things as well. So you, you had said, for example, his holiness. So there is no uh, authoring of sin in all these things. God is the overflowing source of, of all good being himself mm-hmm. good. You had already said then also, yes, the angels and man's fall is ordained. There is no plan B. This is all plan mm-hmm. A. And even though if we can't understand the whys and the what, so why was Satan allowed to rebel, lead angels? Why was man created if he would fall anyways? All that isn't concerned ultimately with the question of why is God choosing to do this or that? It is simply that his will is pure. It, his mm-hmm. will is perfect and, and trustworthy. Well, and also, while we don't know the, I guess, more detailed why, we do know the ultimate why. Mm-hmm. It says that these things glory. God has done for his own glory. Yes. Now, we don't know exactly how that works out, but God does. He has a purpose in all of it, which ultimately serves his glory. And so even as we don't know the detailed why of the things that happened in this world or continue to happen in this world, we can at least rest confident that ultimately, whatever it is, God is going to use it for his own glory. And that it also has then a benefit towards those called according to his purposes for those who love him. You have, for example, Isaiah 40 um, had come to mind from verse 25 onwards. To whom then will you liken me or to whom shall I be equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number, the stars that is. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. So nothing in creation is, is missing is the point there. He goes on, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary, his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. This is, nonetheless, the reinforced promise of those who trust in him and who walk in his ways, that he upholds us. God shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. When we talk about the Lord's hand, we're talking about his powerful hand, his all-powerful hand, able to uphold all things and lead them to govern them, to call those things which do not exist as though they did into being, that he doesn't waver. He himself is going to do what he promises, that he himself is able to perform as he says. His will, in other words, his power and his wisdom go hand in hand in the manifestation of his will, that his will cannot be resisted, which is a great comfort if we're trusting in him as he is, as he reveals himself to be, as he says he is. This is is where you then get phrases like, nothing can snatch us out of God's hand, John 10, right? The good shepherd, we can't be snatched out of his hand. He shows himself to be the God that he says he is, and he has ultimately done so in the greatest way in revealing himself through the Son, Jesus Christ, the perfect way of the revelation. This takes us into, I think, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism statement as well. Mm -hmm. The Westminster has laid out the terms of the definitions, but the Catechism then goes and talks about how this is a benefit for us. 
Lordsday 9 in question 26 says, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? So taking all we've said in the Westminster into account here in its background of who God is and so on. The eternal father of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's the presupposition that a father necessitates the son and also the bond between them in the Holy Spirit, that person. Out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence is my God and father for the sake of Christ, his son. So there we get into a personal subjective benefit here. I trust God so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul. This taking us back to question answer one and will turn to my good, whatever adversity he sends upon me. That is that which he permits and has ordained in this veil of tears. Uh, he is able to do this because he is almighty God there by calling his name Elohim, God of gods, Lord of lords, the one only true God. And he desires to do this because he is a faithful father. So the covenantal relationship there where we're adopted in as children of the most high, you know, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone, right? Mm -hmm. Lord turning all good gifts, even that which he sends, which is a trial, uh, those things which afflict us, that he governs those things to be used for our good, for our sanctification. Uh, Lord's Day 10, what then do you understand uh, by the providence of God? Question 27. So providence is the, and note that providence is, it's equated to the almighty and ever-present power of God, by which God upholds as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures. So they're a statement of the encompassing of all things. And so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. So there's a rejection of uh, any kind of thought of naturalism, uh, any thought of, you know, a fortune, anything that would dualism, a dualism, really any kind of worldly mentality or pagan mentality. Everything is rejected that is not in the will of God, mm -hmm. that rejects God as the one who decrees. But you also get an implication from uh, the statement, he upholds as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures. There, uh, a reference to Hebrews 1.3, which is an important note here. Hebrews 1.3, uh, actually, I'm going to read from the context of 1.1. So God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past, so his revelation of himself, to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So the one who reveals the father, I and the father are one, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and then here, and upholding all things by the word of his power. So the authority being given to the son and to the God man, Jesus Christ, is the one who upholds all things as the word of God's power. This is to state then that Christ is the governor. God's providence is through the son. And this is why you have a statement such as in actually the reference going back to Heidelberg Catechism, question answer one that we cited a moment ago from question 26, he will turn to my good. He provides whatever I need for body and soul. This is why in question and answer one, there's the statement, Jesus Christ, my faithful savior. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. And he, that is the son, watches over me in such a way 
that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. It's because God's providence is through the Son's lordship, his kingship as supreme governor, but particularly also of the universal bishop of his church. Mm-hmm. So the, the fatherly hand is through uh, the Son, who again, I mentioned a moment ago from John 10, the Son says, I give my sheep eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Or why? Because my Father has given them to me, and he is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Again, John 17, right? I read that a moment ago as well. The Father gave uh, the sheep over to the Son before the foundations of the earth, so that the Father would be glorified and that we would know eternal life, which is to know God. And then question 28, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence then help us? The answer, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love, for all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. And this takes us back to things like, uh, in him we live and move and have our being. We have uh, that the Lord, you know, if he has regard for the lilies of the field, dresses them in greater uh, arraignment than that of Solomon, right? Or if he feeds and cares for the sparrow, how much more then will the Father care for us? And the same thing then, that neither life nor death nor angels or rulers, no uh, powers or principalities, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, I, I serve now in the OPC and in the Westminster Presbyterian tradition, but there was a time I was in the URC and... This was probably my favorite part of the Heidelberg Catechism just because of the level of practical and pastoral comfort that it brings. The Heidelberg is, of course, best known for where it begins, what is our only comfort. But here you really see this comfort fleshed out into why we can have this comfort. Even in hard times, even on our darkest days, why do we have comfort? Because we can recognize that even those dark days, even those difficulties of this life, they all are still within God's hand. And so though we may not understand them, we certainly don't like them always, though we may suffer and have varying degrees of hardship and difficulty in this life, God is with us. And these things that are happening are within his control and he cares for us and not just in the big things, but in the little things. Um, Actually, this part at the end of question 26, he is able to do this because he is almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. I, I often use that actually at the end of the congregational prayers at our church as an acknowledgement that, you know, these things, because in our Reformed churches, in the congregational prayer, it's a longer prayer and it covers a wide variety of issues and things and needs. And basically praying these things with the recognition that God is able to do these things that we've asked. He is almighty God. He is the sovereign of all things. He has the power and ability to do whatsoever he pleases. And also he desires to do them because he is a faithful father. You know, God desires to give good gifts to his children. He desires to help us. He desires our good. Now, this can be difficult for us because we recognize that, you know, we ask God for things often and we don't receive them. Uh, We don't receive them when and how we want them. God's not a vending machine where if we put in the right coins and push the right buttons, we're going to get what we want. Often our prayers are answered in the negative 
So it can be hard for us to kind of wrap around this idea that God desires to do these things for us. But seeing in light of what all was stated here, even the adversity, even the difficulty, even the the times where we ask him for things and he doesn't provide them for us, he desires this for our good and he does it for our good. And it is within his hand and within his will, which even if it means, you know, suffering and difficulty and even death in this life, ultimately he will turn all things for his glory and our good. Now, perhaps three additional things that this can be taken to, I think, that maybe bear some conversation here, especially as we have the tendency to, on this podcast, to talk about Christ and culture, the implications there. But perhaps a little bit broader first, what about God and the world? We're talking about his providence and his actions in the world. All things are from him. I think uh, in this day and age, even among uh, the reform, there's a hesitancy to speak about, say, God sending nature to do his bidding. Say, uh, when hurricanes come and strike an area, or when you have uh, something like, say, COVID, worldwide virus, as it was painted, things like the Black Death. When we're saying that the Lord sends all things, and that he does so through secondary causes, that he himself is ultimate cause, uh, that he ordains things, the unmoved mover, if you will, he uses things like weather or bacteria, viruses and such to nonetheless do his bidding. There is nothing that is outside of the control of God. And I think maybe that makes some even reformed a bit hesitant uh, to not come off as then also occasionalists that God is a directly, directly without secondary cause moving things. But when we consider things like Proverbs 16, 9, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Or if we have something like Proverbs sixteen thirty three, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Uh, a lot being even then, say, dice, or the throw of a dice in the control of the Lord, or are we becoming occasionalists in that? But more direct, we go into something like Genesis 8. Now, some might say that this is because this is under an old dispensation. There was things that worked differently even. Um, But when you go into something like Genesis 8, verse 1 says, the second sentence, God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. The Hebrew in that even would speak of, it's a hifil, speaks of God as God causing a wind to pass over the earth, which then has the effect of the water subsiding. That the Lord, uh, just like when he sent the flood in uh, Genesis 7, the Lord is employing nature as his agent, uh, in this case, as his agent for judgment. Even when the Lord made the promise that he would not destroy the earth again, he qualifies it in uh, sending a flood, that he will not then also subject the world to a general broad destruction, that is, encompassing all animals, every all life on the earth extinguishing them in his judgment until the time of the second judgment. This takes us to that question of, does God at times perhaps send certain judgments in smaller scopes in ways such as, again, the bubonic plague? Uh, When you have in time somewhat a third of the population of Europe put to death under plague, we do have to think of, yes, the Lord's providence includes that. We may not always know for why, but we at least know that there is a wickedness of man that must be at times, called to account temporally, even on a wide-scale basis. When we talk about the Lord's providence, again, based in his attributes, not just in his will and not just in his mercy, but also his justice, 
does God execute justice in this life? Does he act justly? How does scripture uh, speak of God's opposition to the wicked and his support of those he deems righteous, right? Psalm 103, uh, verse 6, the Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. That is a very good thing for us who are not just, those who are not righteous, who are sinners by nature and yet regenerated in Christ by the declaration of the Father that we are justified in Christ. Well, this is a hope then also when there's things like imprecations in the Psalms, for example, the Lord establishes all justice in this life. The Lord reigns in righteousness, even when men are not righteous. So this going to my thought on culture, Andrew, here, when we see things in our day and age of the wickedness of man, that satanic statue in the Des Moines capital in Florida, abortion in our country and many Western cultures, all of this is going to have to render an account to God. And even our lawmakers that are, you know, supposedly conservative or whatever, when they permit things like the satanic statue, or they're not doing enough to to push against abortion, they must render an account to God for this. The blood is on their hands for permitting these things. Right. And this is a very lost and although it shouldn't be because it certainly is a biblically and doctrinally sound belief. Uh, it's one that's very much been called into question in our day, even among Presbyterian and reform communities. I'm thinking back to, there was a discussion I had some months back on uh, kingdom polemics with Aldo Leon about Meredith Quine. And he brought in a lot of these ideas of like intrusion ethics, which were basically efforts to try to explain how these texts of the Old Testament that talk about things like uh, God's judgment on the nations, imprecations, things of that sort, really just don't apply and don't have a place in the New Covenant. But that's a much more dispensationalist or Anabaptistic type thinking and approach to the scriptures. It's not Reformed theology. You read historic and classic reform theology and you see very much that the reformers and that our great theologians have seen these things as having continuing validity so like when we talk about nations and there's been a lot of the discussion about christian nationalism which we've talked about these sort of things at some length and there's some things that the christian nationalist folks are saying that i'm on board with there's some things that i'm not quite there but i think you do have to reckon with the idea that god deals with nations and god deals with rulers and yeah i know the the reflex response to that is always well we're not old testament israel well okay Fair, fair enough as it goes. We're not a theocracy. We're not under the ceremonial law. We're not under the civil law, except where general equity applies. But you also look through the Old Testament. It's not merely the nation of Israel that God is dealing with. Read the book of Isaiah, just as one example. And there's nation after nation after nation besides Israel that they're still judged for their sins against God. Book of Amos, another good example that comes by. Really, any of the prophets, you read them, and it's very clear that God deals with nations generally. And this is not in any way done away with or abrogated in the New Testament. It's reinforced. People love to read Romans 13 and say, We're, we have our duty to submit to the authorities, and yes, we do. 
But also those authorities have responsibilities as well. They are to be a terror to bad conduct and they are to promote and provide for what is good. Well, what is good and what is evil? It's what's established according to God's moral standard and God's moral law. So those rulers, those magistrates, they're accountable to him. Psalm 2, still a text that applies today. All the kings of the earth have a duty to kiss the sun lest they perish in the way. Uh, I'm not a theonomist just because I said that. It's biblical. It's reformed. It's what we believe. It's what we've basically always believed until just recent decades. There's been a lot of uh, deviation and revisionism going on in our approach to these issues. Just because there's no longer a central nation of ethnic people of God doesn't mean that all people are now no longer called to be accountable for sins and required to repent. Luke 23, Christ says in verse 27 to 31, so there was a great multitude of the people that followed him and the woman who also mourned and lamented him as he was bearing the cross. But Jesus turning to them said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry. Providence continues on, if you will. The Lord continues to sustain and uphold the world for the purposes of his glory, those things of which he has decreed to come to pass, in that there's time for man to repent, that every single one of the elect would be accounted for, would come in, all those for whom Christ died would bend the knee and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So the Lord would rather people, yes, earnestly repent in Christ, because of Christ. But all are still going to have to bend the knee and confess him as Lord, even those who opposed him, even the reprobate. There's another, also too, an article of the Westminster Confession of Faith. This isn't brought forth quite as clearly in the catechism. It's implied there, but it's stated explicitly in the Confessions chapter on Providence, which is chapter 5, and then this is paragraph 7. says, As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth all things to the good thereof. So this is really underscoring a principle we've we've already seen throughout this that God, you know, even created the world and continues to rule and govern the world for the good of his people. Yes, this is something that we believe, but it's not just something we believe on an individual level. It does pertain to the world at large. It pertains to the relationship of the world to the church. It strikes at some of the perhaps over realized views of common grace and of general revelation that seem to treat the world as just operating autonomously and independently and indifferently to Christ and his church, that we're just basically here adrift in a world that really has no need or obligation to regard us. This is saying that that God's providence, and then we have seen how exhaustive and far-reaching and comprehensive his providence is, is particularly for the good of his people in this world. So That's one of the great comforts of the book of Revelation, where it's a letter to the church uh, and the church in all ages, even as we are uh, in the warfare of this world, that we see that 
Christ is warring for us. And it's not just against these spiritual principalities, but it is against the wicked who are ruled by these spiritual principalities of darkness. The Lord is in opposition to the wicked. Again, this goes back into things like the prophets and talking about comprehensively the nations. It's referring to the nations of the world or simply worldliness, those in the kingdom of darkness. And also then the the Psalms too, the imprecations ultimately all apply to those who are enemies of God or enemies of his people and therefore enemies of God. This doctrine of providence is such an enormous comfort because again, as the catechism had said, we can be patient in adversity that is even from the world not just personal afflictions. We can be thankful in prosperity for the future. We can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father. No creature will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. That includes the wicked who the Lord directs the heart thereof into hardness as vessels of destruction or softening them as vessels of mercy. Yep. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Well, there's a daily dose of Calvinism. Yeah. Have we done enough here? I believe so. We're not going to have enough uh, Apostles' Creed if we don't stop at some point here. (laughs) That's true. Did two Lord's Days at once. Yep. Although it may well come out in multiple parts because that's how we roll here. 14 episodes. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, this has been... Comparing catechisms on Once for All Delivered, looking at the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Larger Catechism as it relates to God the Father and creation and providence. If you have any questions, comments, complaints, send questions and comments. We don't want to hear them. those are fine if you have complaints you can send them to caleb's private email (coughs) we lost connection there uh uh, anyways Uh, yeah um but anyway uh yeah if you have questions or comments we are on social media at ofad podcast so on twitter and facebook you can email us ofadpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website onceforalldelivered.com. We got all our episodes there. We have all the old Bobcast episodes there. And Andrew, you uh, sent out an email recently as well with a reminder of some paid subscription benefits. Yeah, I did a thank you and an update to our paid subscribers. We thank you to those who are paid subscribers uh, who are helping to support the show. And if you are one of those paid subscribers, you do get some benefits. You get access to a group chat with us. uh, So you can talk about the show with us and with other listeners. Um, You have access exclusively to the comments thread on our site. We are going to try to uh, release some outtakes and some bonus content uh, just for our paid subscribers as a thank you for supporting us. So if you do that, Make sure to use your benefits. If you're interested in that, those are the things you get. So you can consider supporting us financially and all that information's on our website. And yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I think maybe uh, perhaps uh, if I might, a suitable ending for us to uh, keep in mind here, you know, is simply uh, everything we've we've said in this Lord's Day. 1 Timothy 1.17, just here to close. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Take Go Heidi. Heidi. Thank you for listening to this episode. 
For the latest news and updates, visit our substack at onceforalldelivered.com, where you can also support our work with a paid subscription. You can also follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. If you like what you have heard, leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts and spread the word about the show. Once For All Delivered is hosted by Andrew Smith and Caleb Castro and produced by Andrew and Heidi Smith. A special thank you to our founding members, Eric and Kathy Hepker. We hope you will join us again next time on Once For All Delivered.